0: Yesterday, Linda and I went on a hike. We had the day we decided we would go, we would find using, you know, apps. You know, you live for an app on your phone. I've already told you, don't use your phone. But now, you know, when you need an app, I've got an app. All trails, we found this. It's, it's well, really high rated, 273,000 positive ratings, more or less. And so we found a trail the Turkey Run Heritage Trail, over off of GW Parkway, uh, and it sounded just fantastic. And it was a moderate hike, but you know Linda and I are in shape, we walk every day, we knew, we knew this was going to be a good hike. so. In the afternoon, we drove over to Turkey Run, we arrived, we got out of the car, fresh, alive, filled with goodness, ready for a hike. And uh, as you know, if you've ever taken hikes in state parks and other kinds of places, they're blazed. They uh, will, they'll put blazes, blazes are just marks on a tree. Are uh, sometimes they're marks on a stick that they put somewhere, but you know are a sign. But for the most part, they're blazes on a tree, the kind of mark where you're going, and usually they're color coded. So we chose the yellow path. That's the it seemed very bright, colorful, sunny, hopeful, filled with positivity, and we set off. Now the beginning of this trail, it went smoothly. It well as smoothly as it goes when you realize that. As some of the hikers who had reviewed this path said, you know, it was, it was a five-star path, but that remember that big three and a half inches of rain we got this summer all at once in like 15 minutes or something like that when like the ocean got dumped from the sky uh, and uh, all sorts of things happened? Well, some of parts of the trail have been washed out just a little bit. So, you know, we were prepared in our minds, sort of, vaguely, by the way, this is the last time I'm allowed to pick a trail. Apparently, <laughs> uh, it looked good and moderate sounded fine. Come on, I mean moderate. Next time, green, easy, easy. We'll, uh, but I won't get to pick it, so it won't matter. If Linda picks hard and it's terrible, it's okay. Uh, so we go on this hike, and you know it's kind of slow going. First, you know it's switchbacks, down, 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 down down and we get to the bottom. That's good. So we're following this yellow path and it goes off and around and down and then we come to the first little crossing uh, and and by crossing I mean it's crossing a little streamlet and so we have to figure out how to go and so Linda says you can figure this out and I did and we were fine and so we made it. Oh, eventually though we get to a place where we we can't find the blazes anymore. Uh, you know you know, that usually means you're off the track. Only, no, that's not what it means. It means that sometimes the blazes are sort of hidden by the foliage of the trees that they're on. (laughs) So we get to a couple of places where there's like two paths, only it's not really marked that this is the yellow path and this is some other path. It's just like, okay, we're at this crossroads. What do we do? Well, let me just tell you, if you go on a hike with me, two out of three times you will choose the wrong branch. You will decide to go down and walk for a little ways and you don't see any more yellow you see no more yellow blazes no more yellow blazes so then you have to do the thing I told you not to do which is take out your phone with the map and you ask it to center yourself and the path is over here on your phone app and you are over here on your phone app so you turn back around. Needless to say this uh, hike is turning into quite an interesting place. Uh, We did find some blazes, and then we came to a part of the trail that it was clear. There had been high, high, high water when we had that huge flood that was probably 30 feet across. And there were trees strewn all over the place. A couple of trees with the yellow blazes were like gone down the trail somewhere far away from where they were supposed to be so and and it's all rocks and i'm fond of rocks but these are big rocks and so linda and i are climbing up and down rocks and around rocks and there's and there was a beautiful waterfall so if you ever want to go on a walk see a beautiful waterfall go on the turkey run heritage hike but otherwise choose something else This is a long way of saying that sometimes you can find the blazes in life and sometimes you can't. Sometimes you have to figure out for yourself which way you're going. And sometimes you you seek the best answer you possibly can find. And in the history of Christianity, we've tried to do the same thing in describing who Jesus is. Now I want to share with you the first describers of Jesus uh, in their encounter in Mark chapter 8. This is a turning point in the gospel. They've been hanging out together, if you remember with me, uh, Gospel of Mark, 16 chapters. So we're right at the middle, more or less, give or take, we're kind of right in the middle, um, right before Jesus turns his eyes toward Jerusalem and potentially the crucifixion. So Jesus and his disciples went to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. Of course, where else would you go? On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone about them. That's Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. You are the Christ. Well, let me just tell you something. You know, we've been doing this Universal Christ series, and for the last 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to figure out what it means that this Christ guy came and was one of us. You are the Christ. Ah, It sounds great. Good. What does that mean? Well, let me just tell you something about human nature. We take no problem... And create a problem so we can solve the problem sit for a little while without a problem and your mind will create a problem for you that you need to solve and you will start solving it so jesus comes into the world there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of you know i don't know what the world was like two thousand years ago i can read history books but they didn't write them as you know there just wasn't printing presses people didn't massively print all of the history we get is almost certainly from people who were in charge. The Romans wrote the history about how great they were. Don't ask the Jews how they felt about being oppressed and having the temple taken over and images of Caesar put into the temple. Don't ask, you know, they don't get much of a say. The top. So I don't know exactly what it was like, but what is, what is it that we need? So we begin to ask the question, and for the last 2,000 years, we've tried to solve really, we, we said there must be a problem, and that's why Jesus came. So what are the three problems that are possible? One is sin. The world is broken and in some way alienated from God. That's one problem that we, maybe that's a problem we need to solve. One is death. None of us are really fond of that thing. You know, it's coming for us if we're honest about it. But we do everything possible to avoid it like the plague. And when it happens, we try not to talk about it. Or we try to give glib answers to it. Must have been God's will. This happens all the time. Don't feel bad. Get over it. It's fine. You know, we have all these glib, happy answers. And we avoid death like the plague. Or perhaps the third solution that Jesus came to do was to solve ignorance. You know, we were ignorant of what God wanted. The prophets tried to tell us, you know, the priests of the Old Testament all tried to tell us. They all tried to tell us what it was about, but Jesus came to set the record straight so that we would no longer live in ignorance about what God really wanted. Now, those are the three problems they've tried to solve. And over the last 2,000 years, we've developed about seven major And lots of minor theories about why Jesus came into the world and what he came to fix. Because it really boiled down to a problem. There was always a problem to solve. Um, And so for the first 200 years of Christianity, everyone was pretty much, we were kind of ignorant. So Jesus came into the world to be a moral influencer. You know how, have you ever watched one of those Dawn commercials where they talk to you about Dawn dish soap? You know, and they put this pan of water and there's all sorts of grease in the middle of it and you put one drop of Dawn in there and the grease goes away. Maybe if we just put a drip of Christ in the middle of of history, there we go. Moral influencer, the world becomes more moral. Well, That theory just, you know, it's a theory. Remember, all of these are theories, an attempt to explain why there was a Jesus. Why did we need Jesus? You know, what problem did he come to solve? Now, I I need to say something. I've only talked about the first theory. We're not going to talk about all seven theories. I don't feel the need to talk about all seven theories. I'll, I'll touch upon some of the others. The first thing is, I don't know what your theory about the whole Jesus thing is, if you even have a theory. I respect whatever theory you have about that Jesus guy. I respect it. Because wherever you are right now about Jesus, chances are pretty good if you're open and growing and learning, your theory about who Jesus is will change. Now, maybe it won't. Maybe you have got the right theory. And if you do, it's no longer called a theory. It's called a fact. But chances are pretty good if you're anything like me i have had over my lifespan i looked at the seven major theories and i have held at various points in my life pretty much all seven (laughs) pretty much all seven of the theories and they developed over time in response to challenges in the second century There was still a problem, and it wasn't working out. It wasn't getting morally better. The dawn dishwashing detergent had not pushed all the grease aside. It was still messy to be alive. So they came up with the ransom theory. The ransom theory that essentially the theory was that Adam and Eve had sold out our birthright, and we needed to be ransomed. And the only way we could satisfy... Satan that was their theory the only way we could pay off Satan was with a blood sacrifice and that was Jesus so we paid off Satan now then came some other, then the east and the west did this dance and there was what was called the Christ Victor Christus Victor that is Jesus didn't come to see, he just came to conquer all those things—sin, death, ignorance—conquered. It wasn't the sad; it didn't need a blood sacrifice. He, by facing the cross and death and resurrection, he conquered those things. Done. Well, along came my good friend Anselm. He, uh, you know, he's an intriguing guy. 12th century. He wanted. Here, here's the problem there was still that ransom theory running around and Anselm said you know what if we have to pay a ransom to Satan that makes Satan equal to to God I got to clean this up you know what we don't have to satisfy Satan what we have to satisfy is God's justice and so then we got the satisfaction theory well It wasn't too long after that, that we had a, there was already a split between the East and Western Church, the Orthodox and the Catholic Church, but now came another split in the Catholic Church, between the Catholics and the Protestants. And we still bear the name Protestant, like our whole identity is a protest. (sighs) But in any case, that's neither here nor there. And we have Luther and Calvin who said, you know what? Human beings are depraved slime balls. (laughs) That's pretty much what they said. I'm really sorry. Martin Luther said, we are all individually piles of excrement. And that Jesus came along to sprinkle a little snow across it, but we were still excrement underneath the snow. That's what Luther said. Uh, Calvin was much worse. The image of God is not just damaged in you, It's gone. There isn't an image of God left in a single one of us. We are utterly depraved. And so they came up with the only way that for them worked. And it's essentially a punishing substitutionary atonement. God had to punish Jesus in our place. Individually. Each one of us punished in our place. Now I need to tell you, This is the predominant theory that still runs for a lot of, you know, a lot of of churches. You know, all across the spectrum. They live in that substitutionary atonement kind of way of looking at the universe. That Jesus was the sacrifice punished in our place. And we're fortunate that he was willing to do the stand-in. The Methodists came up with kind of a little side version of that called the governmental theory, which is no longer that each that, that Jesus was punished for each one of us, but God demanded a punishment <laughs> and any general punishment worked and Jesus was the one. He was the one. So now I've covered almost every one of them except the last one, which is the scapegoat theory. And the scapegoat theory was essentially put all the sins on Jesus, and send him into the desert. And we don't have to worry about our sins anymore. This is, in the Old Testament, this is what the high priest had to do. Put all his sins on a goat. They'd send the poor goat into the desert to die, and that way the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and hang out with God. That's all technical. I could say a lot more about all of them, and maybe I said way more than I should have said to begin with. Those are all theories about who Jesus is and about why he came, what problem he was solving, whether it was sin or the problem of death or the problem of our own ignorance of how loved we already are. I don't know which theory you have, if you've even thought about it. Quite frankly, I meet all sorts of people and I say, so what is your theory of Jesus? I think he was a really nice guy. Okay, you clearly haven't read the Gospels if you think he was a really nice guy because sometimes he had some pretty harsh things to say. He wasn't uh, wasn't afraid to call you out when you were on the wrong side. And oftentimes, the people who were on the wrong side were people in power and religious people. (laughs) They were almost always, we always are sure we're right. Let me just tell you about what it's like to be a religious person because I'm one. I know I'm right. Boys and girls, I will tell you right now, I know I'm right. <laughs> and too often, do not have the humility to recognize, oh my gosh, I, I could be wrong. <laughs> that is not even possible. So I'm, I'm glad I took a step back from that and realized it's not even true. Of course I'm right. Of course I'm right. How many of you think you're wrong about your theory about God? You know, just show of hands. A zero. Heck, how many, how many of you think you're wrong about your political choices? Oh, no. not, not, not a single one of you. We are always convinced whatever we're doing is the right thing. <laughs> that is just the way we are wired, brothers and sisters. That is how we are wired. We are always sure we're right. So I'm trying to approach, uh, I'm trying. Notice the word. I put the trying in there. It didn't say I've already fixed it. I'm trying to approach faith with humility, and I have some what-ifs about this Jesus guy, this universal Christ that we are connected to. You know, we said, and I really appreciated how James tied in this morning. There was no conversation about that, by the way, before he, we began this morning. Uh, he, well, he does whatever he wants, but what he, I don't know if he does whatever he wants. I think the Spirit's involved. You know, that whole John 1 passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. You know, I've said to you that that word, that first word that was spoken, that created everything, the Big Bang, 14.6 billion, or give or take a billion years ago, that first word that was spoken, that was Christ. And it's in everything. Christ is in everything. There is nothing we see or touch or know that doesn't already contain Christ, some bit of the image of Christ. But containing it is not the same as being it. What would it take? What would, what would you think of a God who wanted to actually felt like feel like what it feels like to breathe the air? God doesn't need to breathe air. You cannot drown God by sending him underwater <laughs> or her. You can't end God that way. What if God wanted to know what it was like to, to breathe the air? What was it like to feel truly vulnerable? What was it like to be born and not be able to, you know, do anything for yourself? What if God wanted to truly experience what it is to fully be us? Because from the outside, you cannot experience that. I'm sorry, you can't. You can say You know, one of the early heresies of the church was that God didn't really become a human being. He just masqueraded, pretended to die on the cross, and then it was over. He just wanted us to come and share some good news. You don't need to know the name of the heresy, it doesn't matter. But in the end, I think that we know God came as a human being. So what if God just wanted to breathe the air? What if God wanted to be really alive in a way that we experience life? Because God's eternal. What does it feel like to know there's a limit on you? You know, this week, Linda and I are going to take Friday off and go down and uh, Thursday and Friday and go down and visit my, my parents. Dad is turning, turning 91 on Friday, 91. That's a, that's a good thing. Next month, mom will turn 85, and I have said it out loud, and I will be in so much trouble when mom finds out I said her age, but she will be 85. I think she should be proud. That's please. But the truth is, we never know how long we've got. Not a single one of us has any idea how long this life will last. What does it feel like to be finite, to be limited? Because God never felt that until Jesus. What does it feel like to feel limited? God has walked in our shoes and looked through our eyes. And you know what? God continues to look through our eyes today. For all of our limits, I wouldn't trade being human for anything. I would not trade it for anything. You know, there's this wonderful poem by Basho. He's a Japanese 16th century poet. He wrote haikus. Uh, And his haiku, that's my favorite haiku of his, is um, the cry of cicadas do not suggest they're about to die. They just sing their song. They're not worried about 15 minutes from now. They're not worried that cicadas have a very short lifespan. You know what? What do you know about cicadas? Every 17 years, big pile of them show up. Every year, a couple of them show up who missed, you know, they, they didn't set their alarm right. Have you ever done that before? Showed up too early, showed up too late. Well, that's what happens with cicadas too. Some of them show up at the wrong time. It's like. Where's everybody? (laughs) I think you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, little brother, little sister. (laughs) Wait till next year when there's 73 million of you uh, in my backyard. And then you can find some recipes about how to cook them and eat them. But uh, that's neither here nor there. The truth is, they don't ask, they just sing. What would it look like if you sang your song with all your heart? Realizing this could be your last minute, but not worried about that. You know, I keep saving a little bit of myself for tomorrow. It used to be if I got a really good idea about a sermon for this coming week, and then I got a second idea that really fit into this sermon, I would not put it into the sermon. You know why? Because I might not have another idea for next week. I could be empty, so I better save that bad boy. Now, if I, get a, if I get an idea, I'll just give it to you right now. <laughs> that might mean next week's sermon has suddenly changed. <laughs> oh, well, I just told them the whole sermon for next week. But I don't know if i got next week. I know I've got now. So who is Jesus for you? And why does it matter? Is he the problem solver for you, the divine problem? you got a lot of problems. You're putting it on the table. Fix it for me, God. Is he the problem solver of history? Either because he's ransoming you, he's, you know, substituting for you, he's the scapegoat for you. I don't know. Is he fully human like you, and he just wanted you to follow that path? Every breath matters, every word, every thought, every moment matters. Give it all because you are already divine and human beings, because you bear the image of the divine and you walk and talk like human beings. So I'm assuming that if it walks and talks like a duck or in your case, human beings, that's what you are. So be human beings God wanted you to be, love with every ounce of your being, sing the song God has given you to sing with power and grace because that's how the universal Christ becomes evident in the world created by His power. So, (sighs) respect each other's theories. I don't care what your theory is. I don't care if after today you've decided you like two of them. I'm going to keep all six. There were seven. Hello. (laughs) Whatever. Respect each other. Love each other. Listen to each other. Offer dignity to one another. Because we've only got two big commands. The Bible boils down to two things. If you really ask me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor like they're an extension of yourself. And the universe is a better place. That's the universal Christ.